heart I am the shepherd and I am the door I am the good news for the bound and the poor I am I am I am I am I am the righteous one and I am the lamb I am the ram in the bush Sacrifice for sin I am your Redeemer Beginning at the end I am I am Oh, I am I am I am Jehovah And I am the King And I am your comfort and release from your stress I am
Well, amen. A wonderful Christ-centered, biblical song, wasn't it? What was the name of that, Chris? <laughs> open your Bible, the book of Romans today, chapter 5. Your Bible probably I'll just open up there by now. If it's broken in in the last couple of years. Romans chapter number 5. Would you stand with me? We stand here out of reverence to the Scriptures before I read them as in my text. Romans 5 and 1. Therefore, being justified, that's our key word right now, justified by faith. And I preached on that a week or two ago. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's the only way to have peace with God. We have that through the merits, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now down to verse 6. For when we were without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice who Christ died for. Not for saints and perfect people and righteous, for for the ungodly, those without God. Ungodly doesn't necessarily mean a terribly wicked person. It means simply without God, those who are without God. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth or proved or demonstrated his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who did Christ die for? Verse 6, the ungodly. Verse 8, for sinners. Much more than being now justified by his blood. Okay, we saw verse 1, justified by faith. Now we see justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, who did Christ die for? Ungodly in verse 6, sinners in verse 8, enemies. In verse 10, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And you may be seated. When the apostle Paul, the Bible calls him here St. Paul, when Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church, the Christians that were at Rome, he said in chapter 1 and verse 7, that he was writing to the saints at Rome. Saints meaning God's people, the saved people, the regenerate people. He said, I'm writing to the saints. And then he commences to give us the story of why it was necessary for Christ to come. And then he tells us about the plan of salvation. Now, here's a most interesting point, if you will stop and think about it for a few moments. Here he is writing to a church. He's writing to Christians, to saints. And yet he spends every bit of his time describing God's wonderful plan of salvation. Now, wait a minute. You would write concerning the plan of salvation if you were writing to lost people, wouldn't you? No. He's writing to the saints, and he goes into an in-depth discussion of the plan of salvation, the great work of God in salvation, 
and he's doing it to Christians. Well, why is he doing that? He's doing that because as a Christian, if you don't have a really thorough understanding of salvation, I mean deeper than the Romans road to heaven, deeper than the plan of salvation that we put in a track. If you don't really understand all the parts of salvation, it will be unlikely that you will enjoy your salvation. It might even be unlikely that you will even ever have assurance of your salvation and know for sure that you're saved. It is really vital. In fact, there is no more important or vital subject in Scripture than God's wonderful plan of salvation. I never tire of preaching the gospel of Christ and telling people about this wonderful plan. And I've been doing it now for a long time, and you know what? I sure haven't exhausted my subject matter. I could preach on this another lifetime, and I can tell you, I would never exhaust God's wonderful plan of grace in which he saves us. I'm not an evangelist. I'm a pastor. I'm an evangelistic pastor, but I'm not a full-time on the road preaching evangelist who all I do is focus on lost people. I'm a pastor. And as a pastor, it's my role to be a teacher of the Word of God as well as an evangelist of the Word of God. And my mission is to make disciples. I say that over and over to you. I'm interested in winning people to Christ, but I'm not interested in just winning people to Christ and leave them where they got saved as little spiritual babies. It is my job, my mission, my role as a pastor to train and teach and develop and help you to become a serious follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, I have so enjoyed preaching the book of Romans, even though it's the great doctrines of salvation. Boy, it is stirring my heart as I preach this, and I hope it is yours. Now, the word justification appears in verse 1 here, and it appears again in verse 9. And verse 9 is where I have the title of my message today, because everybody's familiar with the fact that we're justified by faith, verse 1. If you're a Christian, you probably have heard that, you know that, you're familiar with that. But I also want you to notice in verse 9 that we're justified by His blood. We're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so today, My title this morning is The Scarlet Thread Through the Bible. The Scarlet Thread Through the Bible. Beginning early in the first chapters of Genesis and going right on through to the book of Revelation, you have a scarlet thread. You have the subject of the blood of the Lamb, and you have it over and over and over and over And today my purpose and aim in this message is to help you understand the importance and the significance of that scarlet thread that runs all the way through God's Word. Now, the word justification there, I don't think I've said this previously. Circle that word there in one place in your Bible and write your little note out to the margin and also write righteousness, righteousness. Because the word justification, as translated in our English Bible, and the word righteousness both come from the same root word in the Greek language. And so they're almost synonymous. You can, you can almost interchange them. Justification means to be declared righteous. To be righteous means 
to be justified. And so they are one and the same, if you will. They, they are, are Siamese twins as words. And the theme of justification and righteousness goes all the way back in the Bible. I just recently read in my Bible reading the book of Job, chapter 24, and I read verse 4, where Bildad, a man who is one of Job's comforters who comes and seeks to comfort him when Job's going through his trial, Bildad asked the question, how can a man be justified or made righteous with God? How can man be justified with God? People that are thinking people, serious about their souls, have to ask that question, and they ask it all the way going back through biblical history and time. How can a man, a human being, a person, be justified with God? How can they be made righteous? I hope you're asking yourself that question, and especially today if you're not sure your relationship with the Lord. How can I be made righteous with the Lord? How can I have my sins removed? That's the question. That's what justification is about. Now, I've written out for you for the first time, and I've been preaching on this several times, a detailed definition of this term, justification. I doubt you'll have time to copy that. If you need a copy of it, we'll get it for you tomorrow sometime. Justification, read that with me. Jesus Christ, having now taken the punishment of our sin upon him on the cross, has made it possible for God to declare those who receive Christ as their Savior to be forgiven, to be vindicated, to even be acquitted, to be pardoned and declared righteous before God. That's pretty heavy. I understand that. But in this social media age when people want everything in sound bites of 30 seconds or less. I want you to stop and think for a minute. Can you do that and not just, I don't want anybody's head to explode, but will you think with me a minute? Think about that statement. Jesus Christ took our punishment, the punishment of Bill Monroe and your sin on the cross. And because he did that, he made it possible for God to declare those who receive Christ as their Savior, to be forgiven of their sins, vindicated, acquitted, all the charges have been dropped, pardoned, no record of my sin left, and declared righteous before Almighty God. Isn't that wonderful today? That would make a Baptist shout. Well, not all of you, but some of us. Some of you don't have any shout in you, but maybe you're going to by the time you leave here this morning. Amen? Romans talks about justification five times, five mentions of justification. Go over to chapter 8 and verse 33, and if you'll read there, you will find in verse 33, who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect to the saved people? And then the answer to that question, it is God that justifies. So we're justified by God himself. He is the source of justification. Now go back with me, Romans chapter 3 and verse number 24. Verse number 24, we're justified freely by His grace. We're justified by God. We're justified by grace. 
Grace means we didn't earn that justification. We don't deserve it. It means that it's free, that it costs us nothing. We do nothing trying to repay God for justifying us. Go to Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. Who was delivered again, referring to Jesus, for our offenses, and was raised again for our justification. So we're justified by the resurrection. He was raised for our justification. And that's the proof that God accepted the sacrificial blood offering of Jesus Christ made to God to satisfy his justice so that he could forgive, pardon, acquit, vindicate, and declare us all to be righteous. And then go to chapter 5 and verse 1, and that's the means of justification. We're justified by faith. It's the only part that man has anything to do with his salvation. Listen to me. If you don't hear anything else I hear this, I say this morning, listen to this one statement. We have a big problem in this country today. Our focus on our salvation is way too much upon us. It's about, did I believe? Did I have an experience? Did I feel this? Did I get the gospel exactly right? And it's all about us. And as long as you're looking inside into your own heart, soul, and mind and trying to determine your salvation, you're always going to be confused. It ain't about you. The only thing you've got to do is believe. And God is the key agent in salvation, not you, not your faith, not your righteousness, not your sincerity. I'll tell you a story about it at the end of my message. Then chapter 5 and verse 9, it is we're justified by his blood. That's the basis upon which God can justify us. So having said all that, I want you to think with me about that scarlet thread running through the Bible. The blood atonement is what the theologian calls it. The blood sacrifice has always been required throughout the Bible by God. A blood sacrifice. Genesis chapter 4, you know the story of Cain and Abel, don't you? They go up to make an offering to the Lord. And Cain offers God the fruit of the harvest, beautiful fruits and vegetables. He was a farmer. He'd grown these things, and he places them on the altar, and God doesn't accept his offering. Abel, his brother, goes up and takes a little lamb, and he slays the lamb and puts the blood upon the altar, and God accepts his offering. What's the difference in the offering? The blood. The blood is what made the difference. Abel is forgiven, and Cain goes away angry and jealous and envious, and the next day slays his brother. The blood atonement. Abel is accepted. And then I go over to the book of Exodus chapter 12, and the children of Israel have now grown to a couple, three million people. And they have been delivered from Egypt, where they have been slaves now for 430 years. And God says, I'm going to deliver you tonight. And I'm going to send the death angel through the land. And I'm going to requite these Egyptians for their 
sin. It's going to be an angel of judgment. And the firstborn of every creature, of every household, will die. Except if you will take a little lamb, and if you will slay the lamb, take the blood, put it in a basin, take some hyssop, a weed, dip it in the blood, put it up over the top of the door, put it on the sides of the door, form a cross. And because it's a symbol of one day I'll send my son to die and shed his blood. And if you have the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. There'll be no judgment. Think of that. No judgment if you're under the blood. Hey, listen to me today. No judgment if you're under the blood. That's for us too, isn't it not? No judgment. Are you sitting here today wondering about the judgment? You don't have to, my friend. If you're under the blood, there will be no judgment. There'll be reward, but there'll be no judgment for your sins if you're under the blood of Jesus Christ. And then they later on, God established the Day of Atonement. We call it Yom Kippur, the Jews do today. And what was Yom Kippur? It was the day when animals were slain and their blood was sacrificed. And then other temple sacrifices, in fact, every day throughout the Old Testament, the old economy, in the, first of all in the tabernacle out in the wilderness and later the permanent tabernacle, the temple, and all these little lambs and goats and turtle doves and animals were slain. Every time people sinned and were conscious of it, they came and made offerings, and always it required the blood, it required the life. Why did God choose blood? I can't give you all the reasons, I don't know, but I know this, that every one of those sacrifices for sin, the Day of Atonement, the Passover, the daily sacrifices in the temple, all, every, in every case, God required the sacrifice of an innocent substitute. Someone, some lamb, some dove, some goat, some heifer, something who was innocent died for the sins of the guilty. An innocent substitute. Also, it required a violent, cruel, and bloody death. The blood had to be shed. The blood had to be shed. Turn in your Bible to the book of Leviticus with me back, the third book of the Bible, chapter number 17 and verse 11. It takes a moment to turn, but sometimes it is so vital. Here is a key verse that every Christian on the planet needs to know. Chapter 17 of Leviticus, and I'm in verse 11. It says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. So that tells me that the blood is associated with life. When your blood is, when you lack blood, you're, going to, you're not going to make it. If a person's in an accident and their blood is running out of their body, they can't lose their blood and live. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar, and God says, it makes an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. And that principle is true all the way through the Bible. You know, so often in history, 
The Bible has been ahead of even medical science or of science. And it wasn't until 1616 that a physician named William Harvey from England discovered the circulation of the blood through the body. Do you know prior to that, back in the Middle Ages, they used to bleed people. They thought that their disease was in their blood, and if they took the blood out, the person would get better. And they were killing people, bleeding them. In fact, you went to the barber to be bled. That's why that barber pole's got red and white stripes on it. It was the way they advertised, come and, 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 and lose your blood. And people died out of the ignorance of that. And then William Harvey, this physician, discovered, wait a minute, the life of the flesh is in the blood, Leviticus chapter 17. In verse 11, people need blood when they're ill or when they've had accidents. They don't need to lose their blood. People often say to me, Pastor, how were people saved in the Old Testament? I had a man ask me that within the last month. How was it that the people in the Old Testament were saved? He said, I always thought that it was through keeping the law. And I said, oh, no, no. The Bible clearly says in the book of Romans, the purpose of the law was never to save anybody. It was to show people our need of salvation. The law simply shows us, like a mirror shows us dirt on our face, the law shows us our need for the cleansing of the blood. So how were they saved in the Old Testament? They were saved on credit. They were saved temporarily by the death of a substitute. A lamb, a goat, a bull, a heifer, a turtle dove, or whatever it may be, but always an innocent substitute and a violent, bloody death. Then one day, the Lord Jesus Christ came. And so we don't make those sacrifices anymore. Isaac Watts, one of our greatest hymn writers, and wrote those beautiful, high, reverend, Christ-exalting classical hymns, traditional hymns. Listen to the words of Isaac Watts. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give my guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all my sin away a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Believing we rejoice to see our sin removed, and we bless the Lamb with cheerful voice and sing His bleeding love. My, what words. Not all the blood on Jewish altars slain could give my guilty conscience peace. No, those lambs were a temporary putting off a down payment, if you will, but none of them could give permanent justification, vindication, forgiveness, pardon, and acquittal of sin. None. And so we come to the New Testament. And John the Baptist is baptizing one day down by the river of Jordan. And he sees Jesus Christ coming. And he points John 1, 29, you know what he said. Behold, say it with me, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the moment that he called Jesus the Lamb of God, every Jew standing on that riverbank knew immediately what he meant. 
that call back the Passover, that call back the Day of Atonement when they took the land and shed the blood. Now this great preacher stands and he says, Behold, look there, the Lamb of God, not a lamb of a man or a farmer or a herdsman, the Lamb of God has finally sent. The Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God, God in human flesh has come to visit us and live among us and to be the Lamb. Only God would be, only the blood of God would have the potency, would have the power in the blood to take away the sin of every human being who ever lived. Behold the Lamb of God, and he takes away the sin of the world. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9 and verse 22, without the shedding of blood, is no remission of sin. If there is not bloodshed, there will be no remission. There will be no forgiveness, no acquittal, no justification, no vindication. You're absolutely 100% dependent upon the blood. You can be the best man or woman in Florence, and your good works do not take away your sins. Never. Not once. There's nothing you can do. You can serve the Lord until you pass from this life. You can be absolutely a moral person, but without the shedding of blood is no remission of sin. Now, either the Bible's true or it's not, folks. Without the blood, there's no remission. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. You were not redeemed, writes Peter, with corruptible things like silver and gold, the things of this earth, material things. But you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. We're dependent upon the blood. 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses me from all sin. I won't have everybody look it up, but if you're struggling today with guilt, if you're struggling with something that happened years ago and you can't get beyond it, I want you to look up that verse, 1 John 1, 7. And I want you to take your pen or pencil, and I want you to circle real heavy that word all. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from A-double-L, all sin, all kinds of sin. You say, I'm, I've, I've had a secret affair. I know, but all sin. But pastor, I'm a closet alcoholic or drug addict. I know, but all sin. But I've run around on my wife or my husband. I know, but all sin. I took something that didn't belong to me. Yes, but all sin was placed under the blood. Do you get it today, folks? All sin. I love that. If you really get a hold of that and believe that, there's the antidote for guilt. You can just give me the hundred bucks that you would have given the psychologist, but I'll, I'll gladly take it. But 
On the other hand, you, it, it's free. It didn't cost you one thing, did it? All sin washed away, acquitted because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And boy, I love this one. Revelation 5 and 9. And so we go into the throne room of heaven. Revelation 5 and 9 deals with future things. It's given us a little picture. It opens the portal of heaven and shows us what heaven is like and its future from now. And the saints are clothed in their robes of righteousness, their white linen robes. White linen in the Bible, always the symbol of righteousness. And the saints are singing praise to Jesus Christ. Worthy is the Lamb is what they're singing that we just sung about a few moments ago. But listen, listen to the words of what they're singing. Thou was slain. And they're singing it to Jesus. He will be there on the throne. They're singing right to him. Lord, you were slain. And note what they sing. And you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Revelation 5 and 9. Lord, you redeemed us. And even in eternity in the future in heaven, it's the blood that's the theme of our song. There's power in the blood. We sing. Nothing but the blood is one of our treasured hymns. The blood will never lose its power is a more recent hymn. Over and over and over, people have been touched by this message, and they've written these beautiful songs. Lord, you are worthy. You have redeemed us, not by corruptible things like silver and gold, but you have redeemed us by your blood. Now, there's a whole segment of Christianity that rejects what I've said to you tonight, believe it or not, or not tonight, today. There's a whole segment of the so-called Christian faith that rejects what I've said. It's the wing of Christianity we would call liberalism or rationalism. And it despises the idea of the blood atonement, the scarlet thread going through the Bible. And I tell you this because as a pastor, it is my responsibility to warn you about the wolves in sheep's clothing. And there are wolves in sheep's clothing all over the country, and they despise the doctrine of the blood atonement of the scarlet thread in the Bible. They ridicule it. They laugh at it. I think of a man named Harry Emerson Fosdick. He lived about 100 years ago. He was pastor of the Riverside Church in New York City, which still stands. And he wrote books ridiculing, and he was a great intellectual. I think he was a Harvard grad or something like that. A brilliant, brilliant man, but he was very liberal He rejected the supernatural in every sense. He didn't believe that Jesus, for example, was virgin born. And he preached and wrote tracts and books against, among other things, the blood, the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. He said he called people who preach the blood like myself and and you who believe it, and I know you do. He said, you practice a slaughterhouse religion. Can you imagine A man comparing the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to a slaughterhouse? 
You preach that old slaughterhouse religion. That was his term. He said the people who believe this are unsophisticated and crude, and he even used the word barbaric. He didn't want a barbaric religion where preachers preached about the blood. And through the years, I think a lot of preachers, not wanting to be called anti-intellectual, wanting to be thought that they were sophisticated and whatever, they, they began to back up a little bit on the blood. They began to avoid preaching it. Some whole denominations even remove songs like Nothing But the Blood. And there's a fountain filled with blood. They removed all references to blood from the hymnals. Many of the words of the songs, they changed the word blood to death. Now, in all fairness, there's been a big brouhaha in our circles here. And, and in some cases in the New Testament, the King James translates blood, and you could translate death because it uses a word that would be an equivalent. You could use either. So I don't want to attack everybody because some of our brethren have, have dealt with this rather ignorantly. On the other hand, it, the Bible says unmistakably the blood so many times you just can't, you can't get away from it. And these theologians argue about, well, whether we could be forgiven and justified of, of our sin. Did it require the actual shedding of Christ's blood on the cross? Or what if Christ had just gone to the cross and died of shock? Or what if he had died of a heart attack? Would we still be saved if Christ had gone to the cross and died of a heart attack? My belief is we could not. My belief is the Bible means what it says, and it says what it means. And if you only needed one verse, I would quote Hebrews 9, 22, without the shedding of blood is no remission of sin. And there's not any single illustration you could point to. Every one of those sacrifices, the Old Testament, the type of Calvary, you have the Passover, you have the Day of Atonement, you have the sacrificial system in the, in, the, in the temple. None of those animals would have, it would have, it would never have been acceptable for them to die of a heart attack or shock. Those animals had to save their, they had to give their blood because they were typical and symbolic and metaphorical, if you will, of what Christ was going to do when he came. And they had to die a, a death of, of shedding their blood. Every single sacrifice mentioned required that. So now I've tried to teach you pretty thoroughly here in a few moments at a level of, of, of lay theology. I hope you understand the absolute critical and essential nature of the blood of Jesus Christ and that the death of Jesus Christ is not the same as the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. And what that means, I go back to what I said a while ago. If what I've pre preached to you is truth, then salvation is entirely of the Lord, and you have very little to do with your salvation. May I say that again so you won't misunderstand it? We talk about my salvation and when I believed and this experience that I had and all this stuff. I want to tell you, be careful about putting too much of you in the salvation thing. 
The Bible four times says salvation is of the Lord. Say that with me. Salvation is of the Lord. He thought up the idea before the foundation of the world. He sent his son who died on the cross and who shed his blood. If there would have been any other way, don't you think he would have chosen that rather than to see his son treated as he was? Then he raised him from the dead. And the whole theme of the Bible is the the scarlet thread running through. Always the violent, bloody death of an innocent substitute in every case. Don't you think the Lord would have chosen another way if there had been another way? But the shedding of the blood represented the giving of the life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And it represented an atonement, a covering a putting away of our sins. And I'm saved today by the death of the crucified one, not by the quality of my faith. It just takes salvation completely out of man's hands. It's all of grace. I'm just standing here like a beggar with my hand out, and I hear the gospel, and I say, Lord, give me that. I believe. I accept that. I'm not going to try anymore to save myself. I'm not going to look down in my heart and see what I can come up with because when I look down there, what I see, I don't really like. Lord, thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that 2,000 years ago he went to the cross and the sin of Bill Monroe was placed upon his shoulders and with his stripes, I am healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned from him to our wicked way. And the Lord hath laid on him the sins of the whole world. And he's the propitiation. He paid the price. That's good news. If you tell me I have to do something, I might not do it. I might do it imperfectly. But if it's all about what he did for me, salvation is of the Lord. Psalm 3, 8. Salvation of the Lord is of the Lord, 37, 39. Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah 2 and 9. Salvation is of the Lord, Revelation 7 and 10. And my good works, my attempt to screw up my, my character, and live a life of good works enough that it will off-balance my sin? Uh-uh. Now, note again those words I pointed out as I read the text. Revelation 5, 6, he died for the ungodly, those without God. 5, 8, he died for sinners. If you've ever sinned once, you're a sinner. 5, 10, when we were enemies. We just put too much emphasis on our experience and on our faith, and on us. And that leaves us with a lack of confidence. I hope I'm saved. I guess I'm saved. I think I'm saved. Boy, I hope I'm going to make it. I'm doing the best I can, Pastor. Mm -mm. I know I'm saved. Not because of one single thing I've done, but because 
The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin. I was in Wilmington, Ohio, what, three or four weeks ago with our youth choir on our choir tour. It was the last night of the meeting, and boy, it's high spirit. You know, the kids, are they've made friends, and everybody's hugging each other, and everybody's fellowshipping, and they know it's the night, the last night, we're getting ready to get on the buses and come home. And, and I preached from the book of Romans, preached all week from the book of Romans up there. And as I preached that night, a storm came up. It was the middle of the service. I almost had to dismiss the service. The, 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 the rain on the roof was so loud. It was, it was just like thunder going on in the, inside the building. And I could tell I'd lost everybody's attention. You know, they, And people were getting up and leaving in the back. They were going to get their umbrellas so they wouldn't get wet so they could walk back in and, and sensible stuff like that, you know. I'm impressed with a guy who will go to the car to get his umbrella so he won't get wet, aren't you? He makes two trips instead of one. You know, every church has some of those. I've been waiting 45 years to say that. So uh, it's just just raining so hard, I can't hardly concentrate. And people are moving around. You know, I've lost their attention. I don't have any eye contact. I dismissed the service. A couple people came and trusted Christ, man, that night. One man I remember about my age. Well, I'm standing down at the front talking to people after the service here, and people are coming by and just saying bye and talking to me and so on. I really wanted to get out of there because my granddaughter was over here, and they're having a reception, and she's getting ready to leave the country, and I'm trying to get out of there. I wanted to enjoy that with her, and these people keep coming and wanting to talk. So I, I, I stood there and talked to them. And I'm walking out, and I get right back to the back there where the usher's closet is. And I'm walking out the door, and a man comes up again. He's an older man. He's about my age. And the man is drenching wet. He said, with a look of desperation on his face, I've got to talk to you. And I said, all right, sir, I'll talk to you. And he says, well, it's pretty confidential. And, and, I, and so I stepped into what would be the usher's closet here, a little closet there. I said, How, why are you so wet? He said, I went home, and I let my wife out, and I said, I've got to talk to that preacher. And I drove back to the church, and I had to walk back in, and so I'm wet. I said, why, why, are you, why do you have to talk to me? He said, I, I just live with doubt about my salvation all the time. Why do you doubt your salvation? Well, I don't know. Did I, did I really understood it, understand it the night that I heard the gospel? Did, did I really believe in Jesus Christ, or was the devil tricking me and making me think I believed? Well, I, and you know, I keep having these doubts, so if I doubted, could I be saved? And he went on and on, stuff like that. I mean, the poor man, I felt so sorry for him. He just eaten up with doubt and misgivings. I could tell he was under tremendous stress internally. And I pointed him to exactly what I've been talking to you about. You're looking at you. Look to the Lamb of God, sir. Look to the cross. 
It's not how you've lived. It's not whether the quality or... Jesus said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, that isn't much. This man was so totally inward focused looking for his salvation. I didn't have the right kind of experience. I don't think, I don't remember, did I cry enough or not? All that stuff. I said, sir, you're looking in the wrong place for your salvation. You look to the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you can believe and accept that he died for your sins, God's grace is great enough to save you. Whatever in consistencies and problems you have, I'm sure he'll take care of that. But just look to Jesus. And I had to leave, and I left. And I got in the car with the pastor, and I said, I need to tell you about this man. He came up, and I described him. He said, oh, I know him. He said, I've talked to him five times about that. Every time we have a guest preacher comes, and he gets under conviction, he, goes, he has to come and talk to them about it. He, he struggles with this, and, and, and I feel sorry for him. He's a very unhappy man because he's so sincere, so conscientious. He wants to know that he's saved, and he, he can't get there. You know that man's problem is he needs to get his eyes off of himself and what he's done and his experience and get his eyes on God's Word that says Jesus Christ Paid it all, period. If you look at your faith, your faith may fail. It failed for Abraham. If you have doubts, you're in good company. Do you ever hear of a fellow named Thomas? If you're tempted and fall into sin, did you, did you read the story about Peter the night before Jesus died and he denied him three times? You're not saved by your own efforts. Salvation is of the Lord and in the blood of Jesus Christ that justifies us. That is one great fact. Christ shed his blood for our sins. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.